Welcome to the Lonnie Swain Show podcast. I'm your host, Lonnie Swain, media veteran, content creator, and storyteller. I'm a New Orleans native currently based in Los Angeles, California. This podcast is all about sharing our stories, support, and resources to inspire, encourage, and empower our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share with at least three people. Continue the conversation online at LonnieSwain.com. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Lonnie Swain Show podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Akila Jefferson Shaw. She was with us earlier this year in April. It's been quite a while. That was the beginning of the pandemic, and she shared a lot of great information with us. And today we're going to get some COVID-19 updates and how we can be staying safe during this time. So Dr. Akila Jefferson Shaw, can you introduce yourself for the people? Tell everybody who you are and what it is that you do. Hello, thank you for having me, Lonnie. Um, so I am an allergist immunologist. I work at University of Arkansas for medical sciences in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, back in April, when I was on the show before, I was still well. I, I guess I had just moved to Arkansas. I had been yeah. in California for for about three years at University of California, San Diego. Um, but moved out here to be a little bit closer to home, which is New Orleans, just like yes. Lonnie. Yes, 504. And, <laughs> um, you know, here I mostly see kids in my practice, but I also see adults here and there. And um, I also do research. So my research is mostly in asthma, health disparities, a little bit in health policy and in bioethics. Okay, nice. And so um, I'm sure that's been an interesting transition, starting a job in the middle of a pandemic. How has that been um, compared to previous jobs that you may have started? What was just the, um, I guess, process like? Yeah. So one big thing is I did a lot of my like meeting people and interviewing and orientation via Zoom, which was super weird. Um, You know, I didn't I'd been to the campus before all of this, but I didn't have a chance between kind of April and when I started to um, to tour the campus, to tour the clinics, to tour my office, Mm. you know, any of that kind of stuff that you would normally do um, until I was an actual employee. So that was weird. I did like days and hours of Zoom calls (laughs) to prepare for this, which I know everybody's tired of Zoom now. But um, professional. Girl, add that to the resume. (laughs) I I guess so. But, you know, it's been interesting, but also I think good. So just meeting people on campus um, virtually still a lot of times, just, you know, trying to decrease the face to face that we have as much as possible. Um, I am seeing patients in person. So, you know, we're not, we do do telemedicine, but I'm not really doing that right now. If Mm -hmm. cases get really, really, I was going to say really, really bad again, they're already bad. If cases, continue to get very, very bad, then we'll transition to telemedicine and, you know, we'll have to see patients that way. But it's been interesting. It's been a ride, uh, but it's, you know, good stuff still happening. Mm -hmm. And so just from your perspective as an allergist, immunologist, what is going to be qualify as really, really, really bad to start going to telemedicine compared to where it is now? (laughs) Yeah. So I think things are terrible. I think they're horrible (laughs) that, you know, just the the fact of the matter is that cases are higher than they were when we shut down back in uh, March, April, May. Um, They're well beyond that. Uh, New cases per day, the amount of deaths, everything is, is, you know, beyond all the thresholds that we never thought we could reach way back then. so in my view, you know, I think things should be slowing down now. Now, is that going to happen? I don't know. But, um, you know, I think business as usual probably is not going to be working for much longer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so since we last spoke, we have addressed that now the numbers are exponentially higher in cases and deaths and all of those things. What do we know now about COVID-19 that we may not have known in April, in March? One of the things was, is it airborne? Have we Mm -hmm. confirmed? And what does that mean? How long is it, you know, staying alive or, you know, how, how long can it be transferred airborne? 
Yeah, so it is airborne. Um, before, we thought it was just really respiratory droplets, which are if you are talking to someone and you have a, like a little bit of spit that comes out of your mouth, which all of us do, right? And they're close enough to you, and that spit lands on them or lands on a surface that's near them, and then they touch it and it touches their mouth. Then you would get it. Airborne means that you can be a little farther apart from people. Um, so let's say if you're in a restaurant, you're sitting at one table, and then somebody is sitting a table or two away from you. It can travel that far to so get to more that than si the six feet probably more than six feet and when you say more than it's it's still an open question so <laughs> it's not you know to be honest it's not a hundred percent clear we think maybe in some cases more than six feet particularly if it's not in a well ventilated place so there have been reports of restaurants specifically where um, there are vents that blow air in a particular direction for several feet and people who are in that kind of air flow for several feet have gotten infected so farther than six feet for sure, but people who are not in that direct air path did not get infected. So it's really hard to say. A lot of the research that's been done that's not based on kind of just natural history stuff um, is in a controlled setting that is not like the real world, right? So even the, the ones looking at surfaces, does it last on a cardboard box very long or on a countertop or whatever it is, those are under perfect circumstances where the temperature is a certain way, you don't clean, you don't do this, you don't do that. But that's not how we live in the day-to-day -day world. So, you know, all those things are still a little hard to say with 100% certainty. But we do know it's not just via droplets, which is what we thought way back then it is, you know, it can travel farther distances than that, which is why it's really important now, and we'll get into that, I'm sure, uh, to wear a mask, even if you are, um, you know, not in a crowded place, because you still don't know what the airflow and the ventilation is like in those places. Mm -hmm. And so with it being airborne, how does that impact you in an outdoor setting? Because mm -hmm. like, for so example, California here, they have now said you need to even wear a mask outdoors. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. how, so how does that work? Yeah, I think, you know, the CDC came out with that guidance about a week ago that if you're not inside of your home, you need to wear a mask. So even if it's not a crowd, even if it's not a big public space, and really the reasoning is because we know that with certain perfect conditions, the virus can be transmitted in, at distances farther than we thought. And um, two people that may not be as close to you as um, as you thought they needed to be to get sick. So, you know, it's, it's probably in some cases a little overkill. So if you're on a beach and there's nobody for 50 feet, you know, maybe that some might say it's a little overkill, but in my view, um, it's better to be safe than sorry. And there's no harm we know in wearing a mask. There've been plenty of studies now looking at things like oxygen uh, saturation and people who wear masks and even people who smoke and people who have chronic lung disease showing that if you wear a mask, it does not alter your oxygen levels and things of that nature. It's very, very safe to do. And so why not just do it? Mm -hmm. And that goes for even exercising or exerting yourself or anything like that. Absolutely. We know when you're exercising and breathing hard, those air particles that you let out go even farther distances. The same with singing, the same with playing instruments like horns and things like that. Um, and so we just have to think about all of those different uh, phenomenon and, and kind of what uh, puts people at higher risk and what doesn't and kind of what makes sense. But in the end, I say wear a mask, mm -hmm. period, point blank, period. It's <laughs> not going to hurt are. you. Right. It will only help you. Mm -hmm. And any other big discoveries that we have made since April that you would say were previously unknown around March or, or April? I think um, the treatment is a little bit better. So there is one FDA approved treatment for severe COVID-19, and that is something called remdesivir, which is an antiviral medication that you get via um, an IV infusion in the hospital. There are also some medications that have been uh, approved via emergency use authorization by the FDA. There are plasma treatments, antibody treatments, um, and then also there are other things like steroids that have been used very widely. And now there's lots of research that's come out showing that 
those things do help patients who are sick. So I think in general, we know how to treat it better. So even though um, there are more people overall who have died since April, the rate of death is actually a little bit less than it was early on. But the number of cases are still much higher than they were early on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one of the things that I've noticed that has improved since April, March is the accessibility to testing. Um, Before, I remember they said that there was a very specific criteria for getting a COVID test, and that was you had to have so many symptoms and you had to have tested negative for the flu. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I wanted to get clarification on if you tested positive for the flu, does that automatically cancel out that you had COVID? Can they not coexist at the same time? They can absolutely coexist at the same time. Um, Any respiratory virus, you can have more than one at a time. So uh, there's COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 is a virus that causes COVID-19. There's influenza. There are other coronaviruses that cause common colds, rhinovirus, all kinds of viruses that people get on a regular basis. And you can definitely have more than one at a time. So now, like I got tested last week because I wasn't feeling well and both were negative, thank goodness, but I got tested for flu and for COVID at the same time. Um, And I think that's kind of a smart thing to do, particularly because we're definitely in the middle of flu season. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that your symptoms are due to that, but it does not mean that you could not have both of them at once, unfortunately. So why was that the criteria then before? Do you know? I would say, I don't know, but I would say (laughs) most most likely there was a lot of uh, concern with shortages of testing materials. And so um, this is a way of kind of triaging patients and decreasing, using algorithms to decrease the amount of people who got unnecessary tests, we thought. Um, And so these strict criteria kind of led to that. But in the end, I think, you know, the variability in um, the symptoms that people have when they're infected leads to, you know, you really have to test more than you kind of probably think you should in a lot of cases because you just never know. Um, There are people who are asymptomatic. There are people who just lose their sense of smell, people who, you know, have severe pneumonia. It's such a variety of symptoms. Um, And so now you're right. It's a lot easier to get tested than it was back then. The infrastructure is just better. People know now that the criteria didn't make all that much sense before. And then also, um, I do want to put a plug in, though. There are still testing bottlenecks when um, there are lots of people who want to get tested. So, for instance, right before Thanksgiving, it was very hard in a lot of places to get tested because everyone wanted to get tested and then travel. Mm -hmm. And I suspect the same thing will happen that week before Christmas where, you know, today it might be okay and easy to get a test, but a week before Christmas, it might be a little bit more difficult. Okay. And so this is a good segue into traveling for the holidays. Let's start there. Is it valid or valuable to get tested before you travel? Is that doing anything for you per se, making your trip and your travels safer? It depends. So <laughs> I I know, I'm, and you know, I, I don't want to give any of you all any false information. So mm-hmm. I'm all about giving you what I know and what the, you know, what the data supports, but nothing more than that, you know, or if I'm speculating, <laughs> right. if I'm, yes. if I'm speculating, I'll let you know that I'm speculating, but we appreciate um, when I say, <laughs> when I say it depends, it really does because the timing matters. So we know that the incubation period for this virus is somewhere between two days and 14 days. The average person will start to show symptoms by day five after infection. So, um, and then also for testing, usually you start testing positive around day five to day seven after you're infected. Okay. Oh, this is, now that's, I hadn't heard that. You don't test positive till day five of your infection. So it's highly variable. Now that that's on average, right? There are some people who test positive later than that. Some people test positive a little earlier than that. So if you, let's say I go out tomorrow and I get infected, somebody with SARS-CoV-2 coughs on me and I get infected and then I get tested the next day, my test will probably be negative. 
Mm-hmm. And then I go travel. And the whole time I'm shedding virus, spreading it around. And then four or five days later, I will start to show symptoms. And that's when I know, oh, hey, and then I'll get tested and it will be positive. That's the typical course of things. So it really matters the timing. There's been some guidance by some people to get tested and then to quarantine for a few days after that to make sure you're not having symptoms. And then, then you might be safe to travel. I still think it's too risky, you know, I think that to travel and to trust that um, a negative test on today doesn't mean that you're not going to get exposed somewhere in between that kind of makes you symptom that makes you uh, contagious and symptomatic and sick. Um, you know, I think also the other thing is for particularly for holiday travel, people are not going for long periods of time. So, you know, if you just want to go somewhere for two to three days, it's a whole lot of work to make sure you were isolated for a certain amount of time. Then you tested negative and then you just travel for two or three days and then hope that four days later you don't get sick. You know, it's, it's a whole lot. And I think there are the guarantee is not there. I think people are um, falsely confident in the testing, unfortunately, and the timing really, really, really matters. Mm-hmm. Last thing, all tests are not the same. It depends on which test you get. So PCR tests are the gold standard. They are the most accurate, the most sensitive. But is the PCR blood, test, blood test, or can you kind of it's clarify? A, it's a test is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a nasal swab or nasal pharyngeal swab. So there are two types of tests that you can get. That's a nasal swab. One is a PCR and one is an antigen test. PCR are more accurate. There are rapid PCR tests where you can get a result within a few hours. And then there are also PCR tests that take a few days to come back. The ones that take a few days to come back are usually more accurate than the rapid ones, but everybody wants a rapid one, right? Right. So, right. And so is that the one to distinguish between the two nasal swabs? Is that the PCR, the one where they stick it further up your nose compared to now I've been hearing that, oh, it doesn't hurt. They just kind of swab it around the opening of your nasal passage. So they can do both type, both nasal tests or both uh, PCR and antigen tests, which are swabs, can both be done either deep in the back of your nose or the front of your nose. It depends okay. on kind of the company. So it's hard to dif- okay. differentiate which test it is based on that. Okay. Antigen tests are usually rapid, like 15 minutes, mm-hmm. you get a result. They are not as accurate as PCR tests. So, and then there are blood tests, which are something called antibody tests that show, don't show active infection. They show if you've been infected in the past. So not useful if you want to travel really. Um, So I'm just going to super brief, you know, Thanksgiving, I had some family who wanted to travel. They were getting tested beforehand. And I said, well, which test did you get? And nobody knew. I said, they stuck something in my nose, but I don't know what it is, you know? And I said, well, I think that's most people probably. It is. And even at the testing centers, a lot of the staff don't know which test it is. They just say you're positive, negative, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, it really matters what the test is, if it's a rapid test, if it's not a rapid test, you know, all these things, so many variables. It's not just as simple as get a test, it's negative, go travel, you know. Mm-hmm. So I just. What would you say in regards to the um, antibodies test? Do you feel that they're accurate in predicting or telling whether you had been infected or not? So those are based on timing, too. So about somewhere between three and five weeks after your infection, you should have antibody levels that are high enough to be detected in your blood. Um, If you get an antibody test after that time, it's unclear how accurate it is anymore. And if you get an antibody test before that time, they're usually falsely negative, right? They're low just because you haven't built up the immunity, um, the immune response yet. So again, they're, it, it all is based on timing and they're not 100%. Um, it's not good, I think, for just long-term planning. Like, did I get infected somewhere between April when all this started, March when all this started, and now I want to get an antibody test? It's not going to help because the time, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just been long. way too much time mm-hmm. <laughs> to be able to tell for sure. Okay. And then I still want to go back to the travel thing, but if you are getting tested and, you know, say you have some antibodies in your system, how are they estimating reinfection cases right now? How has is that increasing of people getting reinfected more than once, twice, three times, anything like that? Yeah. So it's not... Um 
there are not that many reports of it, of reinfection. There are reports of it, but not so many where it's, you know, thousands of people being reinfected. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a handful of reports from all over the world of this happening. So we know it can happen. Mm -hmm. Um, In most of those cases, it seems as if people have had antibodies for their first infection and their second infection yet still got infected again. So Mm -hmm. it kind of shows you that, um, the timing probably matters, the level of antibody probably matters, and the type of antibody probably matters. Um, And really, the science behind that is all still getting flushed out a bit. Um, Mm -hmm. But I will say, and I know we'll talk about vaccines, it seems as if the vaccines so far that are kind of close to getting FDA approved give you antibody responses that are much more, um, much higher than those seen in people who just get infected. So maybe the response is even better than if you just got a regular infection. Mm -hmm. We'll see. Okay. Because that was what I want to go through now is all of the safety plans and procedures that I've heard and that have been recommended to me. If you're going to travel, do this, or this is what I did. And it worked for me. I came out unscathed. One of which was someone who had been infected with COVID and she was getting the antibody test. And she was saying, oh, I got the antibodies. I'm good. I'm good to go. Let me, you know, go travel the world. Let me do whatever I want to do. But you're saying that is not a good plan. (laughs) Or not not an accurate, safe plan. It's not a golden ticket at all, you know? So how high are the antibodies? Are they just above the threshold to get detected? Are they super duper high, you know? And then if they're super high, are they lasting a very long time? Are they functioning well? It's super complicated stuff. And it's not um, black and white, I think, Mm -hmm. in that way, where if you have antibodies, you're automatically protected. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So the next thing is, here's the the main safety plan that I've been told. So, because this is all because number one, I was supposed to travel for Thanksgiving. I got scared and chickened out at the last minute because they started shutting everything down again. They were, you know, CDC says do not travel for the holidays, blah, blah, blah. You know, all this stuff, cases are spiking. So I didn't travel and then I spoke to people and I was telling them because the, the issue is, and this goes into a whole mental health thing, which is another episode. But what I do is I weigh the 75 pros and the 75 cons to not doing anything because I'm saying, well, you know, if I die tomorrow, which will I regret more getting COVID or not seeing my family for a year or however long, there is no foreseeable end to this. So how long is this going to go on? Do I feel like I'm not, do I, I feel like I'm just existing as opposed to living, you know, just Mm -hmm. sitting in the house all the time, all these different things. So um, there's that. And then there's all these unknowns. Well, you could do A, B, C, D, E, F, G through Z of safety measures and you are still not safe. There is no golden ticket there. You're not protected. It impacts everyone differently. If you get COVID, one person may be asymptomatic. The next person is hospitalized or results in death. And it doesn't matter. We see now how old you are or what your Mm -hmm. previous health conditions are, you know, just so many things. Um, So when I was having my debate, then there would be people who would say, oh, well, I traveled and I came out unscathed and this is what worked for me. So a big thing is wear two layers of clothes. You wear leggings, then you put your jeans or jogging pants on over it, same on the top, cover your head, cover your eyes, cover your mouth, you know, wear the face shield, do this, do that. Then when you get then don't drink anything. Don't go to the bathroom at the airport or on the plane. Then when you get where you're going and you exit the airport, you take your first layer of clothes off, put it in a bag and put it in a trunk or somewhere, maybe even spray it down. There's like a fabric sanitizer, which I'll show you and I'll see if you think that it's uh, credible. Um, for killing COVID, but you spray the stuff down immediately, wash the stuff when you get where you're going, take a shower, 
Um, and then, of course, get a test before you go and get a test when you come back. We've already kind of covered that that's not the golden ticket because the timing won't necessarily give you an accurate testing result. Are those other procedures of any worth of value in, um, you know, preventing COVID infection at the airport and on the airplane? Right. So what you're describing sounds like PPE in a hospital, right? So you go in a hospital, if I have to go see a patient with COVID or patients I think might have COVID, you put on a gown, you put on gloves, you put on a mask, you put on a face shield, you put on a bonnet to cover your hair, you put on shoe covers to cover your shoes, you go see them. When you're finished, you take all that stuff off, you throw it away, never look at it again, Mm -hmm. and then hopefully take off your regular clothes at some point very soon, wash them, blah, blah, blah. Um, So there, we know PPE works. Right. We know that if you can cover your um, your mouth, your, your nose, your eyes, those are the main things that um, you decrease your risk of getting something that is airborne or droplet um, born into your system. However, um, <laughs> there medical even professionals with, get COVID every day doing those with P- things. Exactly. With PPE, there's no guarantee. Right. Where there can always be a slip. There can always be a, you know, something that happens. So, you know, I think with all those procedures, they definitely are better than probably walking around without a mask for sure or what, you know, but um, again, it's not a hundred percent. And the one thing I try to stress to people is just because you were okay does not mean the next person is going to be okay. It's not like a, you know, like a clinical trial that's controlled that you did that every single person that wore this particular type of garment and did all these procedures and used the spray and all that stuff did not get COVID. If you do that and you show me that they didn't get COVID, then I'll be like, okay, cool. <laughs> we all need to do that. But I, you know, we just, we can't make these decisions based on one or two or three people um, that the rest of us are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Cause we know that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Okay. And my next question is kind of perfect segue again of one set of people doing one thing and it working for them, one set of people doing another thing. Every state seems to be doing their own thing in regards to um, shut down business operations, all of these different things. But what's interesting is California, for example, where I live, it's been pretty strict the entire time. It has not fully reopened to the extent that, say, a Georgia or a Texas has. But our cases are equally rising. George, you know, so when you look at those numbers from a medical perspective, what does that tell you? You know, and I think that the thing that makes it more difficult, even just in kind of getting people to be on the same page, what I recognize is that the mindset of the people is highly influenced by the rules and restrictions of where they live, because there is this assumption that, well, if it's open, it must be safe. You know, so Mm -hmm. they wouldn't let us do it if it wasn't safe. And so I feel like, you know, when I talk to family that is in Texas or somewhere else or people in Georgia, they're living living a totally different lifestyle. And, you know, they're going to work every day. Kids are going to school, all of these different things. So when I'm saying, oh, I'm worried about this or I don't want to do that or I barely go to the grocery store, you know, I think everyone is doing a very good job about being empathetic and trying to um, be compassionate to say, you know, everybody has to do what they're comfortable doing, but it's just so such a stark contrast of what everyone is comfortable doing based on where they live. So from a medical perspective, everybody doing their own thing, but still kind of seeing similar outcomes. What do you take from that? I, put a lot of stock in masks. I think the fact that, so even things open, things closed, all that kind of stuff, I think that probably makes a bit of a difference. But I think the biggest thing is that in most places, people um, don't wear masks consistently. And, and that's that. We know if, if you cover your face, your nose and your mouth, 
that most of the time you can decrease the the such high transmission of um, of this virus. And in so many places, even early on, there were not even when stuff shut down, there were not a lot of mask mandates in a lot of places. It was okay. We're gonna you know shut down the bar or the whatever, but we're not gonna make it that every single person has to wear a mask wherever they are. And um, here where I live, there was never a mask mandate. There, uh, you know, for a long time, they did not shut down, not the state did not shut down um, most things. The city shut down some stuff and, you know, the city had their own little mandate or whatever, but it was very variable. You, go to, you can go to the grocery store and people are not wearing a mask today. Oh, wow. It's, it's wild, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, with such, um, number one, this virus is very contagious. If you compare it to something like the flu, it's much more contagious than the flu. So it's spread easily. Number two, the, um, the uh, symptoms are so variable. So you have so many asymptomatic people spreading it around, you know, maskless, just walking around living life, spreading it to such and such. And then a week later, just imagine how many people it gets to a week later then you notice, oh, I was around 100 people this past week, and I got them all sick, kind of a thing. Um, and if you're not just taking those simple precautions, you know, it, it's very difficult to control all of it, even if you shut down a restaurant and a bar and the club and the whatever else. Um, if people just simply do not do one thing, which I think is the mask, then it's very difficult to, to get a handle on um, until we get something like a vaccine, which is going to be a whole different <laughs> monster to deal mm-hmm. with as far as getting people to feel comfortable enough to take it. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. And so we'll get to the vaccines now, the moment we've all been waiting for. <laughs> um, first, I'll start with, are you going to be first in line to get a vaccine? So um, I would like to be first in line to get a vaccine. I am not first in line to get a vaccine. I am a healthcare worker, right? But um, the healthcare workers that will be first where I live are people who work in the emergency rooms, primary care doctors, ICU doctors. So the people who really are the front of the front lines and then also nurses who, who work in those same capacities versus I see patients in clinic, but I don't see so many sick patients all day, every day, right? So my risk is a little bit lower than some of those people. I'll probably be in the second wave as far as healthcare workers go, but yes, I will um, like, give it to me right in my arm today, right now, please. Please, please, okay. please. <laughs> okay. That's good to hear. And, you know, not completely surprising, but there are a lot of people who are, terrified of a vaccine who feel that there is no way you couldn't pay them enough money to get a vaccine um, and or they'll get it. But after a hundred waves of people have gotten it, you know, and didn't grow an arm out of their back or, you know, their spine (laughs) or whatever. Um, The one of the vaccines recently, I saw your post, there have been some allergic reactions to it. Which vaccine is that? What were the reactions? Right. That was the Pfizer vaccine. So um, right now there are like three vaccines that are late stage that are probably going to get FDA approved. So Pfizer is the first one. Um, If you all are interested on the FDA website, so the meeting is going to be tomorrow, but they'll have it live streamed on YouTube and whatnot. You can watch the public meeting where they go over all the data from all the trials for that one. Um, And then the second one is Moderna, which is something that was made here by NIH and a company called Moderna. And then and the last one is AstraZeneca, which was um, sponsored by Oxford University in the UK. The Pfizer vaccine was approved by uh, the UK like last week or something, and they started giving it to their um, their population uh, like two days ago. And um, they had two people, two uh, nurses who received the vaccine and had what they're calling an allergic reaction. Now, they did not give more information about exactly what kind of reaction what the timing was Uh-oh. all that kind Uh-oh. of stuff are they still alive know, they're alive they're alive okay they're alive they said they're alive and they're doing well okay. now you know i'm an allergist and i'm like i need the details <laughs> right what happened because it right. matters I, 
Yeah. I keep talking about timing. Timing matters. Did it happen within five minutes? Was it 30 minutes? Was it an hour? Was it two days later? Like, what was it? Did they have difficulty breathing? Did they get a rash? Did they, you know, right. all of this could really, be so really matters. There could different extremes, too, of allergic so reactions. So exactly. The fact that they're so, vague about it makes me feel nervous. That if it were just a rash, maybe they would have said that. But if it no, was like life-threatening allergic reaction. I don't think so. You know, I think that everybody is on pins and needles right now and that they just want to like get through it, you know? Okay. And so they, they, they rolled it out to number one in the clinical trials, the Pfizer vaccine has been given to like hundreds, I would say about 40,000 people already. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. have gotten two doses of this vaccine. And now in the UK, they've given it probably to thousands by now um, in the first few days. And out of that, two people. So I just putting it in perspective, two people had an allergic reaction possibly. And it made headlines across the world. And I'm like two out of, I don't know what the math is on that, two out of 40,000 is, I don't know, really a very, very small percentage of people who are having a problem. Right. Um, if a percentage, the, even if you can even give a percentage. If you can that. even give one. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I don't think it's a huge deal, as big of a deal as the headlines are making it, um, you know, just based on that. And you don't make policies about who can and cannot get a vaccine or what their risk is based on two people. Mm-hmm. So that's my two cents on that. But mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, the Pfizer vaccine is going to be evaluated on Friday by the FDA, and I think it'll probably be approved. Um, and that would be the first one. Moderna's vaccine will be evaluated next week. That will probably get approved. And then the AstraZeneca vaccine does not have a date yet for um, for their uh, FDA um, kind of uh, committee work. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so for the people that are listening that are skeptical, concerned about the vaccine. Now, well, let's first ask you your perspective on vaccines in general. Are you pro-vaccines, period, or just specifically for COVID-19? I am pro-vaccines, period. There are lots of diseases that are preventable if you get vaccinated. There's measles, there's mumps, there's rubella, there's polio, there's smallpox, there's influenza, there's a whole host of things. And lots of devastating uh, diseases that most of us um, our age and you know, most people don't remember smallpox, thank God. We're not around during smallpox epidemics, but that killed and killed and, um, you know, just hurt so many people across the world. And so I think we have the luxury of saying vaccines are not important because we didn't live through that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you read books on vaccinations and how they've worked to, to really stop such devastating illness, um, I think most people would be for it too. There's also lots of bad information out there about vaccines, particularly linking it to things like autism and stuff mm-hmm. like that, which is not true. Um, there was one study that showed that, and that study was actually retracted because the um, researcher lied and um, and it had to be taken out of all of the books, right? But it still has persisted, just like a lot of bad information persists for a long time, even though we know that it's not true and it had never had any basis to start with. Mm -hmm. Um, But in general, I think vaccines for most people, and there are some reasons why some people can't have them, um, but generally speaking, I think are a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so in regards to COVID-19 vaccines specifically, um, and, and people who are concerned, and especially at this point, because number one, there are so many unknowns. Number two, because people may be skeptical about the medical field, vaccines, all of these things individually. And then it's like the perfect storm of unknowns or skepticism. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say you think the benefit of getting vaccinated is not just for you specifically, but for the country and for the community at large collectively in 
reducing the spread and getting it under control? Why, why do you think it's important? Yeah. So I think first, you know, just like you mentioned, you're kind of doing a risk benefit analysis about if you want to travel or not travel or whatever. And the same thing here, you have to look at the risks of it and the benefits uh, to it. And I think vaccines in general can um, stop bad disease outbreaks. And that's been proven time and time again. And so vaccines in this particular instance will be able to do the same thing as long as enough people get vaccinated. If that happens, we reach something called herd immunity, which means that the virus can no longer spread as easily in a community as it once could because most people are already immune to it. So they can't catch it and spread it along. So that's really one thing. I think with this whole pandemic, thinking about kind of the collective good is where we need to be and not just the individual good. We know that we have to, all of us are so connected. If I breathe outside and cough, I'm gonna get people sick, right? If I'm sick, Um, I can't just think about myself because I don't wanna wear a mask. I have to think about my neighbor, my family, my friends, my colleagues. Um, And so the vaccine is for you for sure, but it's also to help your community. So that I think thinking about it in that way, um, for me at least is helpful. The other thing is I know a lot of people are skeptical about the speed at which these vaccines were um, developed. And I 100% get it, definitely get it. Um, One thing I would say is that it's 2020 and I'm very happy that we have the advances that we do in science to be able to do something this quickly. So I think the speed is not a bad thing. The speed is, uh, is a consequence of technology. So before, particularly for, let's say, the Pfizer vaccine, the um, is something called an mRNA vaccine, which has been studied for a long time for different types of diseases. And it's not been all that successful because of issues with how it's stable and it kind of breaking down once it's used and not just not being strong enough to, to do what we wanted to do. Um, the reason they were able to develop an mRNA vaccine for SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 so fast is because the technology to make it more stable is now here. And so people know how to use it. They know how to make this particle so that it stabilizes in the vaccine itself. And then it can be administered to you without getting broken down and degrading too fast and all that kind of stuff. The other thing is um, the speed at which they were able to do the genetic analysis of this virus has never been done before. That's because of technology. The collaborations that were able to happen across the world has not been done like this before. That is because of technology. So, you know, all these things, it's a horrible time. It's a bad time. It's a terrible pandemic, but it's 2020, it's not 1918. Mm -hmm. And so we are able to do things today that we just clearly could not do before. So that's one reason why it's so fast. The other thing, safety-wise, 40,000 people for each vaccine each company that's made it have gotten vaccines so far. None of them have had horrible reactions that we are aware of. Now, we know that that's not going to be 100% for every single person across the world, but that's pretty good odds that you're going to be okay. Um, And then the last thing I would say from like, you know, our people, my people, (laughs) we are like, not about it. Mm -hmm. And I get it. I get it. We have plenty of reason to be skeptical, yeah. uh, plenty of reason to to think that people are out there to get us, plenty of reason to think that the science Documented, is not for us. backed up, <laughs> Documented, backed up, receipts, uh-huh. all kinds of receipts. But, you know, um, a few things. Number one, for the Moderna vaccine in particular, the lead scientist on that is a black woman. Okay. Number two, for the research staff and scientists and all that, for a lot of these companies that have produce all this are people of color. So it's not just, you know, the big bad man who's up there (laughs) making stuff for us to take, right? We are at the table. We are in the lab. We are producing these things. We are bringing to the table what we know our communities are concerned about and trying to let everybody know, okay, we hear you, we get it. But this, you know, this is what it is. This is what it's not kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what I've tried to do is be very, um, uh, very clear 
with when I say things based in, in actual facts, right? So we know the science behind this. We have the data behind it to back it up. That's why I'm saying I think it's safe. That's why I'm saying this and that and that. The regulations that are there to make sure that people are not treated in the way that they were treated during Tuskegee or Henrietta Lacks or all these other atrocities that happened. Um, again, it's 2020, it's not 1965, right? We have stuff in place to protect us and to make sure that the best science is happening that is going to be good for everybody not just mm-hmm. you know some groups of people mm-hmm. Ooh, that was a mouthful okay. <laughs> <laughs> right and now i'm not sure that i'm running in line to be the first person but what did make me feel more comfortable is that it wasn't even an option for me to be the first in line because they're giving it to medical professionals first. So I feel like, okay, you know, if, if you're in the medical field and you're willing to take it and, or you're going to be taking it first, then I think that that gives me some sense of safety or security that, you know, medical professionals who do have more knowledge about vaccines than I do and they're signing up for it based on everything we know and don't know that made that did make me feel a little bit better Um, whereas I I feel like before it was like oh they're gonna do the trials on you know the poorest communities and you know Mm -hmm. wipe us all out and blah 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 you know all of that stuff Mm -hmm. that was probably just started from one bad meme online or something you know not founded in anything factual Um, but one other question about vaccines and then I know I'm gonna let you go since COVID impacts different people so differently, there has been a question of will one specific vaccine work for everyone or do the vaccines need to be more customized, I guess? Mm-hmm. I think that's a good question. Um, so far, I'll say for the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, um, I'm not sure for the AstraZeneca one, but for Pfizer and Moderna, the Uh, People who did the clinical trials made it a point to have super diverse groups of participants. So white, black, Hispanic, Asian, old, young, people with heart disease, people who are obese, people with, you know, all kinds of different things Mm -hmm. to answer that particular question with as much certainty as possible. Again, it's not going to be 100 percent, but based on the trials, the when you look at kind of we call it subgroup analysis, you look at the different groups. So you look at just black people, just white people, just um, Latinx people. How did the vaccine do? It's 95% effective in black people, white people, Hispanic people, old people, young people, you know, obese people, non-obese people. Um, it across the board has been efficacious for the Pfizer and Moderna, which I think is wonderful. So, you know, there may not be a need to um, to be so personalized with the approach. I think if some of the other vaccines that are coming out, if we start seeing lots of variability with how effective they are, um, then maybe that's something that needs to be looked at. But right now, I feel very confident, particularly in the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, that they will be um, kind of uh, very good and work for most people, no matter what your background is. And they specifically did the trials with such diverse groups so that they could answer that particular question, because I know it's a big one for um, for all of us. Mm-hmm. And also just with all the different strands or strains, the vaccine is supposed to cover every SARS that there is, every COVID 19, every, 20, 25, you know, whatever. <laughs> every SARS CoV 2. So not every SARS, which is okay. slightly different, but. Um, but they, in general, yes. So the, the mutations that have been seen in this particular virus have not been ones that um, seem to be ones that will make a difference with any of the vaccines, the way that the vaccines are made, which is good. Um, so I don't think that that would be a, ma- a major problem at all. Um, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see because we have all these different vaccines coming out. 
you know, which states are going to use this or which, you know, communities are going to use this one or that one. Pfizer will come out first, but it doesn't mean that in six months, Pfizer is going to be the one that is available, right, for you to get. Maybe it'll be Moderna, maybe it'll be whatever. Um, And so I think that will be interesting to see. But I am hopeful, based on these at least first two, that we're on the right track with with how effective and and how safe the vaccines will be um, going forward. Mm-hmm. And when do you think that the general public will have access to vaccines? Mm, I think probably not for at least another six to nine months, to be honest. I also think it really depends on where you live. So here in Arkansas, we're a small state, so it'll probably be a little bit faster than that. But in California, oh, faster. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's why you got to move to move to Arkansas because they're <laughs> okay. just not as many. <laughs> they're just not as many people. You know, mm-hmm. so um, so they're thinking that most healthcare workers, even if I'm not in that first phase, most healthcare workers will be immunized by January, February. The okay. first wave will be like December, like this mm-hmm. month. Um, so you know, and then it'll start going out to the general public. But I think in other big places, it might be a little bit um, more delayed uh, than that. Just literally because of the sheer mass of people mm-hmm. um, and, you know, number, if you're number 10 or number 10,000 or number 100,000 or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you just kind of have to wait your turn, unfortunately. Um, but I hope people get it. I hope people get it. Cause I think, you know, these are game changers and the data looks really, really, really good. And I have read the hundred pages that the <laughs> FDA put out the other day. I've read it all. It looks great. Okay, so I did get a question um, from social media. Do you know if the vaccines are going to be optional or mandatory once they're available? Have you heard anything about them being made mandatory? I know some people have said based on their jobs, like I know medical professionals, I think it will be mandatory. Um, Do you have any information on that? I think it depends on where you are. Um, I think the fact that there's so much hesitancy that most places will not make it mandatory just to give people the flexibility. Again, it's one of those things where when you tell people to do something and you don't give them a choice, they don't want to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to you know, let people be a little bit autonomous and make that decision for themselves and hope that, um, that they decide to do it. Even for where I work, they have decided not to make it mandatory for healthcare okay. workers. So, and I think it's the same thing, just to give people a little bit of flexibility, though I do think most people will get it. Okay, and so get vaccinated wear our masks, don't travel. These are all your tips for staying safe. Anything that you want to add to that list? Uh, I think that's it. I'm such a Debbie Downer. Um, I think that's all, you know, just just try to make the best decisions that you can make and um, think about yourself, but also think about everybody else. And um, I think that's all really. And we're, we're, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just hold on a little bit longer and we will we will all be OK. OK, well, Dr. Akila Jefferson Shaw gives weekly updates on COVID-19 on her Instagram page. So let everybody know where they can find you, how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, Akila Jefferson MD, A K I L A H Jefferson MD. Um, you can find me on Facebook, same one, Akila Jefferson MD. And then I'm on Twitter at Dr. Akila J. Um, I would love to talk to you guys there. If you have questions or anything, let me know. I can answer your questions. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Lonnie Swain Show podcast. Please visit my website, LonnieSwain.com, where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, check out companion blog posts, show notes, and lots of other cool stuff. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Buzzsprout, CastBox, Anchor, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and my website. I love and appreciate all of your feedback, so don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with at least three people who you think would enjoy it too or benefit from the information. Until next time, go where you are celebrated and appreciated, not just tolerated. Talk to you soon.